Big news on the personal front, after seven and a half months of being carted around, I now have driving privileges back, for which I'm very thankful. Yeah. Uh, lots of people, especially my family, uh, sort of schlepping me around, and I don't quite feel as giddy as a 16-year-old boy with uh, driver's license and freedom and all that that implies, but uh, it feels good. Um, I'm still in therapy. I got some balance issues and, and uh, visual issues. So if you're paying attention, you're thinking, wait, you've got visual issues and you're driving? Uh, stay off the roads. That's my, uh, that's my counsel. Um, I, I'm going to this neuro-optometrist, and I, I do these eye exercises that I call mind games, and he has me stare at pictures, and, and basically he wants me to look at them cross-eyed. And uh, in spite of what your mom told you, your eyes do not stay cross-eyed if you look cross-eyed. But you do get a bad headache. And so that's a big part of my therapy is looking cross-eyed. And the other part, I look at these light boards. And they have three-dimensional objects on them. Only you would see a three-dimensional object. I don't yet see a three-dimensional object. So I've got to stare at it. And he'll say, okay, what do you see? And I go, oh, I see chaos. I see squiggly lines. I see it's a, it's a, I, I get, I'm getting a headache again. He goes, keep looking. And I go, maybe I see the letter B. I go, what? Oh, wait, it's Bozo the Clown. Oh, no, it's gone. Uh, there it is. It's Bozo the Clown. He's juggling blocks that say Bozo the Clown. No, it's gone again. And so he goes, keep looking. And so I just keep looking over and over again. And I share this because um, in many ways, just as this guy is telling me, keep looking, keep looking, you're not seeing what's there. Uh, I think when it comes to the topic of money, many people need to be told, keep looking, keep looking, because you're really not seeing reality. You're not seeing the big picture. So hold on to that. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. This is uh, the second week of Live to Give, and we are, um, I'm going to talk about money. Now, the good news is I'm not doing this because we're behind. Uh, I'm very thankful to be able to say that. We were behind. Uh, we were behind for about six months, and I noted that in a letter I sent out um, in early December, and many, many people gave, and we caught up, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I'm not coming at this topic because we need money. I'm coming at this topic for five other reasons. First of all, this is a big topic in the Bible. The Bible generally, and Jesus in particular, has a lot to say about money. Some would argue that it's one of the three or four biggest topics in Scripture. Secondly, um, this, is, um, this is a topic, this is a, an area, this is, a, this is an aspect of life that few people handle well. When Jesus talks about money, uh, it's obvious he's not talking about pieces of paper and coins. He's talking about a power. As a matter of fact, he doesn't call it money. He, he capitalizes the M and he calls it mammon. And he says very dire things about it. Um, and it's just worth noting that many people have money problems because they don't have any money. Right? I got money problems. I don't have any money. Many people have money problems because they actually have money. And money is a multiplier. It's an accelerator. And it, it actually takes us places more quickly that we may not be ready to go. 
And so um, Jesus has a lot to say about money. It's clear he, he is emphasizing the idea that few of us can handle it well. Um, the third reason I'm, I'm talking about money is because I believe that I failed you on this topic. Um, when I moved here, when we moved here uh, 15 years ago, I remember being surprised by two things. Uh, first of all, how many people had business degrees? Uh, and in, in particular, how many people had MBAs? From good schools, you know, Harvard and Yale and Duke and Stanford and Chicago and Northwestern. And I remember also being quite uh, surprised by how many people were working in finance. Brokers and traders and, and hedge fund managers and all these things. And I remember thinking very specifically, well, I'm not going to say much about money. Because these people have forgotten more about money than I'll ever know. And that was a mistake. That was wrong, and I apologize for that. Uh, I should have let the frequency of this topic in Scripture be my guide. And I also should have realized that the kinds of things you learn in an MBA program, right, like uh, investment strategies and how to leverage capital and how to, you know, how to shelter funds and other things, is very different from what you learn in the Bible about money which really, at the end of the day, isn't about money. What you learn about in the Bible when you're looking at money is really more about your own heart. And so um, I, I, should have, I should have said more. And this really became clear to me a couple years ago, and I've shared about this in the past, but a couple years ago we had a stretch where for uh, four months— Every week, I met with a family from Christ Church that was um, declaring bankruptcy. And after about six weeks of this, it just the light bulb went on, and I thought, I have failed here, right? I should have said more about the downsides of the allure of money. And so, um, so one of the reasons that I'm talking about money is because I think I've failed in the past. A fourth reason that I'm talking about money uh, is because some of you still don't see it. And, and this goes to this whole neurooptometrist and staring at the light board. Um, some of you see the wrong picture, and you're not seeing money in light of, of eternity. You're not seeing money in light of uh, the way God would want you to see money and power and opportunity and all those things. And then the, the fifth reason I'm, I'm um, going to talk about money today is because of what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6. So this is one of, it's called one of the pastoral epistles. Timothy's a young guy, and he's a, he's a pastor in training, or he's a young pastor. And so pastors often read these passages to understand, you know, sort of the marching orders that Paul is giving to Timothy, and, and we would say not just Paul, but, but God. So verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul commands me to command you 
um, to be generous. He's, the command goes to those who are rich. And as I've said on many occasions, we're the rich. Uh, I know that in these zip codes, it's very easy to find somebody that's got more zeros behind their name or a bigger house or newer cars or whatever. I, I get that. But you know, let's just level set the room and be objective. In light of history and in light of the world, Right, we're the wealthy ones, and so I've repeatedly driven you to this global wealth index. Um, Forbes or Fortune, somebody lists the you know top 400 wealthiest people in the world, and if your name isn't on that list, you can find out where you rank by going to the global wealth index. And uh, here's the bottom line: if you make thirty thousand, three zero thousand dollars a year, you're in the top ten percent. If you make thirty-six thousand dollars a year, you're in the top. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1%. If you make $100,000 a year, you're in the top 0.08%. Okay, so we're the wealthy. The problem is it doesn't ever feel that way, right? Wealth is always at least 2x of what we have. And so if you make $30,000 a year, you believe you would be wealthy, feel happy, have everything you want if you made $60,000 a year. If you make $60,000, you think it's $120,000 a year. Uh, I was driving with my, uh, one of my boys, still a college student, and uh, he had figured out that somebody was making $50,000 a year. And he's just like, $50,000 a year? He's making $50,000 a year. Like, that's more money than you possibly imagine. And indeed, it's a lot of money. Um, but when you're making 50000 you think it's not a lot of money. And uh, so there's just this theory of relativity out there. We just keep, we always think, rich is somebody else. So I'm just saying, we're the rich. And, and I am uneasy with the fact that I pastor a church made up of people who are rich. Because the Bible says really scary things about being rich, right? I mean, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Um, so we've got we to sort of be humbled by this. We've got to be gripped by this. And um, there are haves and have-nots, and we're the haves. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. Not at all. It just carries added responsibility and generates some specific risks. And so uh, I'm commanded, and I, I'm a little skittish about commanding you, um, but that's, that's the command to me, uh, to tell you to be rich in good deeds. Um, and so um, I, I just want you to think about this, because there, there's a couple things that come out of this First Timothy uh, passage. The word, in light, of, in light of God's perspective of you, what you want to hear, what you want him to think, is not that you're rich, right? not that you're wealthy, but that you're generous. That's the goal, right? You want God to think you are generous, rich in good deeds. Now, kudos to those of you who have... Who have made good money, right, who have, who have worked hard and been diligent uh, and, and acquired some wealth, or you, like the, in the parable of the talents, you took whatever you were given and you, and you doubled it, 
or more. Uh, There's a lot in the Bible that celebrates that kind of hard work and diligence. And uh, we are commanded, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, we are commanded to take care of our family. To not do that, to not provide for those who are dependent upon us, is, uh, is, it means we're, we're worse than uh, the infidels. That's, that's the way this passage gets stated. So um, kudos to those of you who have figured out how to do that. That is a very good thing. But, um, but if the Bible is true, And if the most important thing about you is what God thinks about you, and you want God thinking, you're generous. You're rich in good deeds. And I want to say being generous and being rich in good deeds is a better investment strategy than buying Microsoft in the 80s, buying Google the day it went public, whatever whatever great stock pick you can come up with. Um, being rich in good deeds is, uh, is a great thing. And so back to this eye therapy, um, I just, there are moments, and I think if you think about this, if you think about forever, if you go, this life is short, it's the dash, right? It's just, it's in light of, in light of eternity, in light of the fact that I'm going to live forever, this life is a very brief moment. Uh, then, then it only makes sense that we would invest what we've been given, the opportunities, the resources, the skills, that we would invest those things in ways that play for eternity. And God wants us to be rich in good deeds and and to be generous. So again, this doesn't mean we can't spend money on ourselves. Not at all. Again, we, we see in 1 Timothy 5, 8 that we are to provide for our family. Additionally, this very passage in 1 Timothy six seventeen, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? We're expected to enjoy the good gifts of God. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's much right with that. We just, at the end of the day, we want the balance sheet of our life to suggest we were givers, not takers. We were givers, not hoarders. So here's the challenge for 2015. Let me be real specific. You want to live below your means so you can give more away. And, and the, the, the real specific parameters, I think, if you look at Scripture, it would be Give first, save second, and live on the rest. Okay? Give generously, save second, and live on the rest. That is the formula that we're, that we're after. And the peace that God offers. Right? A real contentment that comes, uh, a freedom that comes from, a, from moving beyond a love of money. Um, actually doesn't come because we've got so much money that everything we want, we've got. <laughs> okay? That just doesn't ever work. Right? Because, because the things that we want don't occupy us for as long as we expect. And it's almost like the more we get, it's, we're drinking salt water. And it just makes us thirstier and thirstier. So um, uh, the peace that we're after comes from being generous people living today in light of eternity. Um, 
Big picture, and I, I've sort of laid these building blocks down before. Let me repeat them uh, for you briefly. When it comes uh, to money, I think there's a few things we need to hold on to. One, everything everywhere belongs to God. Right? We just need to remind ourselves. Everything everywhere belongs to God. He created it out of nothing, and he claims all rights. So uh, we are, this is point number two, we are managers, not principals. Right? We are stewards, temporarily entrusted with God's stuff, and expected to use that stuff in ways that, uh, that please him, that follow his uh, vision and values and ethical guidelines. And, and I, I got a friend who runs a foundation, has a billion dollars, and so every year, he and his staff give away about $50 million in various causes. And uh, he said to me, in the foundation world, there are two kinds of people. He said there are, there are the principals, and it's usually it's their money, right? They're the ones that gave the money, or their parents gave the money, or their grandparents gave the money. But, but they, they are those who can't be fired. And he goes, and the rest of us are those who can be fired. And he goes, I'm in a group that says we're the we-can-be-fired group. That's what we call ourselves because it's not our money. So we're the we-can-be-fired. And uh, I just want to say, we can be fired. It's not our money. It's not our stuff. At the end of the day, we can't take it with us. Everything everywhere belongs to God. And um, so we're expected, the stuff that's been entrusted to us, we're to use it to provide for those who are dependent upon us. That's 1 Timothy 5.8. Secondly, we're expected to invest it in, in God's work, right? Lots in the Old Testament, some in the New, that talks specifically about that. And um, third, we are to care for the poor and uh, the oppressed, right? The widows and the orphans. We're to have a specific burning passion that pushes us in that direction. Now, this is not to suggest that it's always easy figuring out how we're supposed to use the resources that have come our way. But it's also not that hard. Okay? It's not that difficult. And the third point that I make when I talk about money is that 10% is the minimum. Now, many people protest the tie. They go, it's an Old Testament concept. It's not a New Testament concept. And I always just want to say, well... Uh, first of all, Jesus did nothing to overthrow the 10%. And secondly, um, be really careful about this argument because it's going to come back and bite you. Um, you know, if, if, if you want to get rid of 10%, I promise you, you're looking for any other metric, it's going to be a lot more than 10%. Uh, think about what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. There, he, he changes do not murder to do not be angry. He ups, do not commit adultery, to do not commit lust. He, he says, instead of just love your neighbor, he says, love your enemy. Right? You see the pattern? Instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he says, go the extra mile for other people. So why would we ever think that in terms of 10% that he'd go, ah, take it down to two? Right? I mean, that's just, that's not, that's not the trend line of the New Testament. The, the, the line that we get, the, the message that we get from Jesus is 100%. I mean, that really is sort of the message that comes out of uh, the New Testament. 
So um, over the last few years, I've set a 1% challenge in front of you and said, look, uh, it, if you're not at 10%, and I, again, I think 10% is a minimum. I believe 10% goes to the local church and more goes out besides that. And that has been our, pack, our practice and our pattern, our joy, uh, the opportunity that we've had to even to inch up beyond that as we have, have, have acquired more. So, uh, look, I just say, you know, figure out where you're at and then add 1% a year and keep going up. If you can't go to 10 because you can't get there quickly, uh, I'm not sure I've got the privilege to give you a dispensation, but I know after 30 years of ministry that many people don't ever move. So I'm saying, okay, it's a new year. Increase by 1% of your income what you're going to give away. Um, And um, look, I just believe that there's great joy in this and great opportunity in this and that in light of eternity, you will not regret it. So let me, let me leave you with uh, three very specific uh, challenges that I want to set in, in front of you. And again, I, this is a difficult topic. I mean, I'm playing right into the stereotypical hands of, or the hands of those who stereotype a pastor and say all they ever talk about is money. And uh, it's a topic that's difficult because we can't fake it. And, and you, you know, you can't really lie about the dollar amount. You can lie about your... You lie to yourselves about how good you're doing in other areas of your life, but you can't really lie about this one. It it tends to create tension between uh, spouses because often one wants to give more money away than the other. Um, You know, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons. And and one of the reasons that, that giving is so challenging to many people is because they're massively in debt. Um... I've shared this, I think I shared this once before, but I had a, a single mom come in to see me uh, a while back, and she was a little uh, apologetic about her uh, lack of resources. And I'm like, whatever. And she goes, well, you know, I just, I don't know. She goes, I, I, I don't drive a very nice car. Have you seen the car I drive? And I'm saying, have you seen the car I drive? I could care less what kind of car you drive. She goes, well, there's a lot of nice cars in the parking lot on, on the weekends, and mine's not one of them. And I said, fine, you know, God bless you. She said, well, I, I don't have any debt. She says, I don't have any debt. She goes, I, I paid for the car, and I, I live on what I make, and uh, I, I'm trying to be generous in what I give away, and, uh, you know, I just don't, I don't have any credit card debt, um, but I just don't have much. And I'm thinking... <laughs> Your net worth might actually be higher than, than 70% of the people at the church because you're not in debt, and lots of people are a couple million dollars upside down. Um, she had a shortfall, wasn't able to pay for some medical expenses that she had. Thank you. You give to St. James, and, and St. James is specifically in those kind of situations where we try to come alongside people and say, okay, let's figure out how we can help you. And so your generosity allowed that to happen. Um, but the whole problem of debt is one that means that some people just find this whole idea of giving to be really, really challenging. So I, I want to I leave a couple things for you very specifically. First of all, I want you to identify which of the five camps you're in. And uh, so there, there are five categories of people. Number one, the self-absorbed owner 
Okay? So the self-absorbed owner says, 100% of what I have is mine. I earned it. It's mine, mine, mine. And uh, I don't have to do anything at all for anyone else. Now, there's very few people in this camp. There are some. Uh, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, Ayn Rand, uh, who not, didn't just write Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged that everybody loves. She wrote a book called Virtue of Selfishness. And uh, so there are some people that say, everything I get is mine. I earned it, and I'm going to keep it. Uh, there's a second camp, the obligated owner. Okay, so the obligated owner says, 100% of what I have is mine. I earned it, it's mine. But I'm obligated just by common decency to give some of it away. And they may even choose to give 10% of it away. They're obligated in some way. A third group is the obedient owner. And the obedient owner says, um, I own 90% of it. But I believe that I'm supposed to give 10% away. So 10% is God's, but 90% is mine. Now, here's just a peek behind the curtain. Um, there are a lot, I'm sure, there are a lot of churches or pastors who would be thrilled if they could move people to be obedient owners, right? Can they give 10%? What do I care uh, uh, beyond that? This is not the goal, okay? This is not where you want to be. This is where the Pharisees were. This is not, there's no, there's no joy here. So the fourth camp is the generous owner, okay? It's mine, uh, I want to give a lot of it away, uh, perhaps as much as half, but they believe what's out there is mine. And then fifth, there's the love-inspired steward, okay? So this is a different camp, and this is someone who says, uh, I'm a steward, temporarily entrusted with God's resources, accountable for how I do with what, I, with what I've been given, and I want to lovingly, graciously help people. I want to I uh, I, I move in ways that are going to make a difference. Now, we bounce around from time to time between different categories, very much like me looking at this light board. I see it. It's Bozo the Clown. Oh, it's gone. It's Squiggly Lines. Oh, there is Bozo. I see him again. No, it's gone. So we sort of snap in and out of different camps. But there's a camp that sort of resonates with, with you. And I just say, first step, this afternoon, which camp are you in? Um, step two, if you are upside down financially, you've got debt, if there's tension between around the topic of money internally, if there's tension between you and your spouse, if you're married over money, I want to encourage you uh, to make plans to attend Financial Peace University, which we're going to offer at the Crossroads campus beginning in late February on Sunday nights. I think it's an eight-week class. Maybe it's a ten-week class. Um, so I, I just think there's, there's more to be learned than I'm going to cover in, in, one, uh, in one sermon. So if, if finances are an issue, a source of tension, debt is a problem, I want to encourage you to, to make plans for that class. And then third, I, again, I want to say take the 1% challenge and that is keep ramping up what you're giving by 1% a year. And I would encourage you, if you can, and I believe many of you can, to not stop at 10, right? To be, you want to live in such a way that God looks at you and thinks, 
generous, right? A good and faithful steward with what I have been with what I've entrusted him. Provides for those dependent upon them, right? And makes appropriate provision and enjoys the blessings of life, but is generous and rich in good deeds. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for um, providing for us in so many ways. May we be uh, generous, gracious, loving, thoughtful stewards of the gifts, the ability, the resources, the talent that you have entrusted to us. Living in ways uh, that are storing up treasures in heaven. May we see, just as, as occasionally I see the three-dimensional object, uh, may reality snap into focus for us. And, and so we can truly see this life in light of eternity and the opportunities that it provides. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.